What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. I saw all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, Brady PG 13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Now from Hollywood, California, the horror capital of the world, the Boulay Brothers, Creatures of the Night. Welcome back, everyone, to the Belay Brothers Creatures of the Night. It is Pride season right now, and we wanted to start this episode by talking a little bit about the powerful connection of queer culture and the horror genre. Now, there are some people out there who think, what does being gay have to do with scary movies, or why do you have to make everything about being gay? And to those people, I would say, please have several seats and get ready to watch us pull all of your favorite horror icons straight out of their flaming super homo closet. <laughs> Get them, Drac. <laughs> now, we could talk about how incredibly queer the horror genre is in general and the history of that. But for time's sake, we're going to focus on modern times and horror movies in particular. You know, it really surprises me how many non-queer people miss these super obvious queer subtexts in horror movies. And it's totally not new. It goes way back to the 30s with the Hayes Code. And for people who are unfamiliar with that, the Hayes Code was essentially like this moral rule book that filmmakers had to abide by like from the 30s to the all the way up to like the late 60s it essentially guided production companies away from creating air quotes profane content which of course depictions of homosexuals were included in that yeah, and that's what drove some filmmakers to figure out ways to depict the queer experience through monster movies and you can see that in classics like Frankenstein, Dracula, Cat People and the list really goes on you know, when you look back at those movies today, it's obvious that the experiences of these movie monsters and what queer people at the time were experiencing was incredibly parallel. Like the similarities were were 
so there. And if you think about Frankenstein or how he was misunderstood and looked at the way that society um, viewed these monsters and sort of chased them down with these mobs and these burning torches, um, it's not a large jump to compare that to something like the real life murder of Matthew Shepard, let's say. Um, and many other queer people who, especially back then, were killed and mistreated for being different. Yeah, and in a lot of these older movies, you notice that the the traditional role of the heteronormative couple or the straight hero character is not the star of these movies. It is the monsters who are the stars. And I feel like it was written that way to get people to feel empathetic and humanize the monster a little bit, which I think is why so many queer people relate to the monsters in these movies. Absolutely. Many people don't realize this, but the writer and the director of a lot of those classic movies, um, Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, was created by a man named James Whale. Um, And at the time, he was kind of revolutionary. He was an openly gay man. This is the 1930s in America where no one was out. And I, I kind of feel like he's a hero in gay history. He was out and his his visibility is is absolutely activism, especially back then. Yeah, which brings us to the idea of queens and drag queens and horror. And again, the connection is so obvious, but honestly, unless you're queer, it can really go over your head. And, you know, there's a long history of drag and the horror movie space. And drag queens back in the day were looked at and presented by society as just as bad as a murderer or a monster. Mm -hmm. And that trope sort of persists all the way from Norman Bates and Psycho to Leatherface and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Buffalo Bill and Silence of the Lambs. Like, there's just tons of examples of it. Absolutely. And similarly, I think that concept may go over a lot of people's heads when it comes to our show, the Boulay Brothers Dragula, and how we call our winners super monsters. We intentionally took the idea of drag artists being depicted as monsters, especially in the history of queer horror, and reclaimed that idea and presented it as a positive thing. Exactly. And a monster in our world is no longer what you shy away from being, but something you reclaim, own, and aspire to become. So when you come on our show, you compete to become the super monster. So the idea is to reclaim that word and empower people and then send them out in the world to spread that message. And that's on period. (laughs) Well, it's a deep cut for some people because they see the show as like, hey, here's freaky drag queens that are getting tattooed and buried alive and how cool. But the show is really based on our experience. And, you know, I can say personally, that is our Pride episode. You know, I was shunned by my family for being weird and and a horror and being queer. And my drag was me reclaiming that and owning it and being proud of who I was. So I really wanted to take all the things that I was sort of tormented for and shunned for and made to question my self-worth and then turn that into, no, I am a Disney villainess and fuck you. And the show, <laughs> the show's really an extension of that. Absolutely. And honestly, there's such a rich history. There's tons of information out there on queerness and horror. We're just kind of scratching the surface right now in this format, but seeing how it is pride, we wanted to shine a little light on the subject. You know, for those of you that would like to research this more, a good place to start is a book called Monsters in the Closet, Homosexuality and the Horror Film. And that's written by Harry M. Binshoff. And that is our pride introduction. And on that note, I think it's time we bring in our very own personal Igor, the one and only Ms. Ian DeVogler. Welcome back, Dark Lady. Thank you, Master. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, <laughs> so good to be back. Thank you guys. You're welcome. Oh, we missed you. Oh, I miss you guys. Honestly, what do you bring for us in terms of current events this episode? 
This episode, I wanted to start off with something uh, in Japan. Drive-in haunted houses are apparently making a huge splash in Tokyo. There's this Tokyo-based haunted house design company. Uh, it's called Kowagara Setai. I apologize if I've butchered that. Uh, they've created a haunted house that participants will drive into. Uh, the story behind the haunt is you drive your vehicle or the sanitized rental vehicle from the haunted house into a garage that, mm-hmm. as an urban legend would have it, is haunted by spirits that can be summoned if you park inside and honk three times. So you have this like haunted. <laughs> I, I think it's awesome. Necessity is the mother of invention. We need to come up with new ways to continue to live life as we know it. And this is perfect. This is so cool. Yeah, it's. I, I was reading about it, and there's like ghosts and zombies and kind of other like typical haunted house monsters that you know they assault your car, and you actually you plug into like I guess you kind of give control of your radio via Bluetooth to the haunted house, and the and then your radio tells you this like audio story and kind of guides you through and you know all the screams and stuff you would hear in a haunted house actually come from inside your car how cool now are you driving around or do you just stay in the garage you stay in the garage so i think the way that it's actually set up is kind of like if you were to go into like a car wash um there's like a little track that you kind of go through Got it. Yeah, um, and unfortunately, tickets are completely sold out, kind of a testament to how popular it's been, but there's now a lottery that you can enter for any time slots that have cancellations. So if you guys want to go to Japan, let's do it. I love it. And for me, I'm why am I obsessed with the idea of renting a sanitized Japanese vehicle for this <laughs> haunted house experience? Well, you can rent it here because they have they are making the same thing in Los Angeles. Oh, I saw are they really? Yeah, I saw an ad for it the oh. other day. So they also have a drive-through haunted house. And I was thinking because I was thinking I was like, oh, we're going to do that. I'm gonna I want to make one of those this year. However, I can just see some of the people that work <laughs> getting run over. I'm just like, I'm not doing it. I was like, it sounded like a good idea. And I was like, no, this is going to turn into some like <laughs> 80s movie and people are going to get run over. And it's, I'm like, forget it. So I'm going to think of something else. Oh, <laughs> thus enter the need for a track because that's exactly what I pictured too. Like if you could freely, j- I'm like, hey, we're going to scare people behind the wheel and then let them drive around like, no. Oh my well, God. You know me. I w- I'm like, I wouldn't do it if they couldn't drive around because I'm like, that's lame. Let them drive around. But that's why we'd all get killed. No, totally. totally. Uh, well, speaking of uh, driving, I have kind of some updates from the world of drive-in movie theaters. Uh, Two classic monster movies have topped the box office charts this past week, uh, with drive-in movies again dominating numbers because traditional movie theaters are not open. Uh, Number one this week was Jurassic Park, and number two was Jaws. Both directed by Steven Spielberg, the movies grossed over uh, $500,000 this week, and all those sales come from drive-in theater ticket sales. Yeah. Interesting. We are going to our first drive-in tonight yeah tonight what are you seeing? i don't know we just we just said whatever it's <laughs> like yes we want to go so whatever's playing we're going to see hey, it you should actually check this out the other uh, piece of this uh the original ghostbusters is coming to drive-ins around the country on july 1st but i looked it up and there are some theaters in la and also in texas where i currently am uh that are playing the original 1984 ghostbusters I hate Ghostbusters. I really don't like it. I'm I sorry. I hate right you. I hate you for saying that. <laughs> the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man can really kiss my ass, but Gozer the Gozerian. Okay, personal drag inspiration. Go. Ian, you know this. Like, like that that archetype of a bad bitch with that kind of haircut. I mean, that's basically me when I take my wig <gasps> off and I'm still in like dressing. You know that is my favorite part of any time y'all get in drag. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my gosh. Same. So fun. Up next, just a little bit of an update on some things we talked about in the last episode. Go listen to episode four if you haven't. Uh, the new Scream movie has found a studio to release the film. The production company Spyglass is officially announcing their partnership with Paramount Studios and has a projected release date of 2021. Uh, there's no new additions to the cast or to the plot, unfortunately, but with last episode's unofficial Scream theme, I thought it was cool to give a little bit of an update. For sure. We should keep updating it as we hear more about yeah. it. You know, I'm glad you did that for sure. Yeah. Uh, the last one here is maybe just me uh, getting my nerd bone off a little bit, but Jason Blum has just recently given an update on a new Five Nights at Freddy's movie. Uh, for those who don't know, Five Nights at Freddy's is one of the largest multimedia horror franchises in the world currently. It started as an indie horror game in 2014 where players are tasked with surviving five nights in a haunted pizza parlor. And it's kind of like a good introduction for kids to kind of get into the horror genre. At any rate, uh, Jason Blum has announced that we are moving forward very rapidly and we should expect to see, you know, a new movie in the horror franchise soon. Wow, very cool. Um, I kind of want to take a moment to introduce a new term that I heard before we exit this segment because I, I feel like all three of us are, are falling subject to partaking in it. And I think a lot of people may be uh, across the country slash world. And it's called doom scrolling. Have you heard of this? No. It's basically, it's a new term that's come out about um, from the online activity of seeking out and reading bad news. So like picture being in bed at three in the morning where your thumb is just, just scrolling, 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 because we're all searching for like clarity and some firm ground to stand on in all of this craziness. It's a, a psychologist said that there is an inherent need to do that. We're kind of hardwired for that type of information and in human biology when we're under that type of crisis stress. Wow. Get into it. That's all I have for you guys this week. Yeah, if you want to go to a drive-in movie or if you guys want to go to Japan or maybe even when I come back, we can all go to this new drive-in haunted house. I'm ready. All right, so we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll be chatting with the star of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and the subject of the new Shutter documentary, Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, actor and activist Mark Patton. Stay tuned, everyone. Arda Wiggs has been serving looks in the drag and costume community since 2009. Their reputation in the wig world is well known for providing luscious, thick, snatchingly good styles that turn heads and ensure you are serving the most devilish of looks. With over 100 colors and 80 styles to choose from, they're sure to have something to make you scream. Use the code ARDABOULE10 for 10% off at arda-wigs.com and treat yourself to something truly hair-raising. Welcome back to the Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night. Our next guest is the subject of Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, which is a documentary that sets the record straight about the controversial sequel to A Nightmare on Elm Street, which allegedly ended Mark Patton's acting career just as it was about to begin. Mark, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. That's, that's so nice of you guys to have me here. Oh, we're so happy to have you. It's exciting. So I'm going to get right into it. So I recently rewatched Nightmare 2 before this interview. And I have to say, 
I don't remember this movie being this gay when I saw it the first time. So when did you realize during the whole experience that the film was so homoerotic? Well, you know, I realized actually uh, uh, about two thirds of the way through filming it. It was actually my my hair my makeup artist and hairdresser that really pulled it all together. And you know, the movie it was being written and shot at the same time. So the screenwriter, oh. you know, he was rewriting as we went along. So I think he his subtext, as he calls it, his subtext. Uh, he I think he thought, well, nobody's catching on, so he could get bolder and bolder. And then there was a set designer named Dwayne and a prop gal named Barbara. And they had their own Easter eggs going. And I think I really think it was just, a, you know, it was a perfect storm, I guess. It's like, I realized when we were, I was in a trailer and I was getting ready to run down uh, Sunset Boulevard naked. Well, actually, I think it was uh, uh, Virgil. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I've, I've really stepped into it here. I didn't, you know, honestly, I, I you know, there's all this sort of controversy around it. I, I mean, honestly, I, I didn't mind if somebody would have told me what I was doing. You know, I mean, I had just done Jimmy Dean where I played a, a trans person and, you know, playing a trans person in 1982 was like, you know, that was on the edge. Yeah, so sure. if they would have warned me and let me know, I, I would have, I would have gone with it and I could have prepared myself. Um, yeah. You know, business-wise for it, you know, because sure. it was a different business than that it is now. It's interesting to think that it was kind of like this amorphous thing that was actually developing as you were filming it. So that I think that actually brings some clarity to the idea that maybe you didn't see it for what it was. It's sort of like being in the forest and you can't see it because of the trees. But when you stepped way back and after post and the editing and all that, you can now we can see it. And when we when we watch it, you know, we see you know the S and M coach shackled to the the shower and you guys like wrestling in jock straps with like your naked butts and it's like oh this is like totally gay like get it queen because <laughs> now it's clear but right, then it's yeah. not well you know it's so funny with the guys you know like all of the the men on the set you know the the director and the producers and all that kind of stuff you know i love them you know like um it's like you know gay as cooties and like all of them you know i can't see it i didn't see it and i and I, I said to them later, look, you guys are all like Hollywood filmmakers. <laughs> I mean, like, you're not, gay people aren't strange to you. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you haven't, I mean, you live in Hollywood, you make movies. I mean, yeah. what world are you living in? But, you know, it was, you know, uh, to be honest with you, like, we can joke around about it and everything, but it was devastating at the time. Yeah. And it wouldn't be devastating now. You know what I mean? Me being the person that I am now wouldn't be. But, you know, I had invested a lot in, um, you know, in that career. And I had traveled a long way. You know, I, I pointed myself sort of towards Mars and I had gotten there. And then just as I was about to land, you know, this, the rocket ship blew up. And sure. so it was pretty devastating sure. at the time. But, you know, now I have a, a more of a feeling like, I think you guys were, you were at uh, Outfest in, and um, at the yes. Grommets Chinese Theater, weren't you? Yes, yeah. yes we uh, saw. I, I really feel like I made uh, Freddy's Revenge just to make Scream Queen, just so I could be having this moment now. I mean, I really feel like that was the prelude to the, the big show. And I really do think that uh, that Scream Queen is the big show. I think that's why I'm here, you know, yeah. was to make that movie. 
and to have that conversation with people on, you know, what has now become like an international basis. So I'm really thrilled with it. That's a really wise perspective. I mean, you're looking for the silver lining and it seems, you know, maybe you had to walk through fire for a couple of decades to get to this place. And do you think that gay people see you as a hero? Like, did they then or do they now at all? Oh, well, it depends. You know what I mean? Like, I would say most do. Uh, You know, I mean, I get, I think we've had, I like to talk about this because we, you know, we've probably been reviewed about 800 or 900 times now. And I mean, like big reviews and small reviews. And we've had one, two that were bad. And they were like personal attacks on, on me. So mm. that doesn't really even count because they were like, they weren't even watching the movie. They just, you know, I must have fucked their boyfriend or something a long time ago. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I really thought that. The one I wanted to look up and say, God, what does she have against me? But, um, by and large, you know, that the director, I mean, the, the writers identify with the character, you know, they identify with me in the documentary. And, uh, you know, there's, it's very emotional. I mean, I have stacks and stacks of letters from, you know, th- or throughout my career from people who were touched by Jesse or Nightmare on Elm Street or me or, or the HIV stuff. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a very, very positive thing. Like the other day I got an email, uh, from uh, this guy. And, you know, I'm, I'm sort of used to like going through the emails and, and I don't even pay attention anymore because they're generally good. So I just like note it and say thank you to the people. But this guy was like, you know, I don't hate you because you're gay and I don't hate you for this and I don't hate you for that. Uh, uh, but I do hate you because you're a big whiny fucking loser. Right. Wow. And yeah. Well, yeah. So I'm like, and I was like, wow, you know, like, boy, this hit his button really hard. So, uh, and I mean, I really do have that sort of level with it where it's just kind of like, you know what, I think that's like much more about him than it is about me. So um, if you think what I'm doing is like, uh, you know, a loser or or that kind of thing, then we're not on the same page at all. I mean, like, righteously, we're not on the same page. That seems like a reaction that you're getting now. And I kind of wanted to take you back to then because it's such a fascinating documentary. And we were curious, like at the time when the movie started Mm -hmm. to come out, did you get hate mail from people that were like, I don't like queer people? Or did you get love from the queer community? Like what was the reaction or was it mixed? Well, it was, it was strange because, you know, I, when I did get first, when I first got hate mail was, um, with Jimmy Dean. And, uh, and so I just sort of like, I had, we, we got bomb threats in the, the theater and Karen and I would get these, uh, you know, Valentine's day cards ripped in half and soaked in blood saying they were going to murder us and stuff like that. Oh my God. Um, yeah. So like, I kind of like that was the deep end and it was kind of really glamorous and I thought, you know, whatever. Um, so yes, but I did uh, start to get the, um, I started getting it business-wise after the first screening at MGM. And, um, you know, and it was on you know, like an IMAX screen. And, you know, my agent was the first person who just said to me, you know, you know, congratulations, you're a great actor and you can carry a movie, but you don't look straight. So we're going to have to do something about that. And, you know, that was to me... I mean, I saw it before they did. I mean, I saw it on the screen. I knew what was going to happen. And, um, and it, you know, I was like, fuck. I mean, it, I, it, 
it sent me for a loop so, you know, like really, cause you know, it's like, again, it's like if it all had been presented differently, it could have just been a win-win for me and I could have just moved right through it. Right. But, um, but now it wasn't presented that way. It was presented as something really, really negative. And where the, you know, where the real hate started was with the internet. I mean, that's when it really began to, you know, because people, you know, keyboard warriors, middle of the sure. night, it's easy to, and, and I, I think, thankfully, I was sensible enough to, you know, like I, one time I Googled, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer or whatever the beautiful woman was at that time. And the whole list was, oh, you know, she's a hag. I wouldn't fuck her. And, um, and then every guy, if you look in the internet, any guy who's successful, you know, is, is a faggot. That's just, it just goes. And I didn't, you know, of course I didn't know that at the time. So Mm -hmm. it just all became very personal. And I don't know if you've ever been in the shame spiral, but when it hits, you know, um, it's hard to get out of it. You know, I think we We've kind of experienced that, uh, you know, when our show started to get bigger and we weren't prepared either. And we were like, wow, oh, my God, these people are supposed to be your fans, but it's like they fucking hate you, you know, and then then you kind of have to remember, oh, wait a minute. And, you know, what I always tell myself, and maybe this is helpful for listeners at home that want to, you know, get into show business is that, you know, we watch shows like The Real Housewives, for example, and we'll watch it and we talk about them like they're not real people. Oh, this one did that and that one did that. Fuck her or whatever, you know, and we don't really mean that because we're talking about them abstractly. And then I said, oh, well, that's the way people are talking about us like, and that's what changed it for us. Yeah, we realized that oh, yeah. you know we we might say these negative things about like oh my god what a selfish bitch she did this she did that but we're fans of hers cuz the next week comes around and we're sitting in front of the TV <laughs> watching it again. Like we want more. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. You know and and the the funny thing is it's like I'm a big uh I'm a big fan of uh Brené Brown who's like you know like this TED talk speaker and, um, and she's all about competition, you know, and it's like, I don't, you know, I anymore, I, I'm pretty good about, I don't read unsolicited comments. I have a pet peeve against like my friends or my fans who tag me or send me things that are really negative. It's like, why, why did you send that to me? I'm like, you know, why? And I, I really, I, I, I question that sometimes. I'm like, why would you, you know, do that? You like me so much. Why would you send me this hateful thing? But, um, but I have, a, I have a very big rule of thumb, and it's like I will, like I'll accept criticism from anybody as long as you're doing what I'm doing, you know. Right. And now, mm. if you're a film director or you're an actor or you're a performer or you're putting yourself out there the way that we put ourselves out there, I'm willing to hear you say, you know, Mark, you didn't do so well that time. But if you're just sitting in the cheap seats, you know, throwing darts in the dark at people that you don't know, I'm not interested in what you have to say. To me, you're, you're a loser. You know what I mean? It's like, you, if you get up here and show your stuff, then, I'll, then you're my peer, but otherwise you're not. And you have no reason to critique me. The documentary gets great reviews across the board. And I've seen a couple of the nastier ones. And I kind of wanted to ask you, because I want you to have the chance to say it, like, what do you say to critics that say, well, maybe this movie didn't sink your career. Maybe you just didn't resonate with movie makers in Hollywood or lots of people get roles and can't keep up the success afterwards. Like, what do you say to that critique? I I say that, you know, honestly, if that's a critic, then I say, uh, then you obviously didn't watch the movie because you don't really know what the movie's about. Because mm. the movie's not about me being a star. It's not about, it's not about any of that. 
kind of stuff, really. It's about forgiveness and, uh, and healing. And it's about, uh, you know, ultimately in the end, you know, and it's like, you know, I think Roman and Tyler did just a phenomenal job. But from what I call like the testimony part on, you know, where I'm going to like spiritually witness to you, which is really what that is. I mean, mm-hmm. we all kind of grow up the same way. So we know what all those words mean, however you apply them. But from the moment I start talking about standing on the rock and, uh, and that I have a story to tell, if you don't think that guy's a winner, then again, I, there's nothing I can tell you. Yeah. You know what I mean? I they're, they're like, that. really, there isn't. Because it's not about me being an actor, you know? Right. If it were just about me being an actor, uh, you know, that would be kind of sad and pathetic. Um, you know, I've seen people do those kind of things, and it's absolutely, you know, it was my biggest dread that people would see it as a vanity project where I was like explaining away, um, you know, why I wasn't a success. I have the same thing with AIDS. You know, I've always made a promise to myself with HIV that like when I got sick from HIV, I would not hang my life up on, oh, I got HIV. So therefore I didn't get to complete anything I wanted to complete, you know, because mm-hmm. I saw people do that and I always thought it was really sad. So if you, I think you kind of answered this, but I'll ask anyways, if you could go back, let's say you could go back in time to the time when you said yes and mm-hmm. you know, you accepted this, what would you do differently knowing what you know now. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Well, I would have played the character differently. Um, You know, I would have done more like a goth kind of Smith loving boy, you know, and I would have, I've done all kinds of things. There's a movie called Closet Monster, which is, uh, which won TIFF, I think in like 2017. And it's very much in tune with A Nightmare on Elm Street too. Uh, there's, you know, it's not a horror movie, but it feels like a horror movie. And Connor Jessup is the boy. And I would have done lots of things like with, you know, with Jesse having stomach aches and, you know, eating problems. And he would have cut himself probably and slept in the closet, you know, a lot. Um, you know, that's, be safe. there were like all kinds of cool things to do with that, you know, and the music and the way his room was decorated and, you know, and like Robert and I have talked about it and, Robert's talked about it in the press. It's like, you know, I really wish they would have just, you know, made it a full on, you know, Grady was in love with him. And that's that, you know, right? because um, it would have been fun at that time. That would have been you know, pretty exciting. But, but as far as like karmically changing anything, I wouldn't change anything now because, because I honestly, I know, you know, I've, I've real strong sense that this was like all meant to be. So, um, and I'm satisfied with what, I got out of it, you know, Jesse and Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, that's pop culture history right there. And it affords me a platform to talk from that I wouldn't otherwise have. I have friends who had, you know, 20 years careers that don't have the, the gravitas that I have in this right. 
It's so interesting to hear you speak because, you know, this is a large scope of time and culture and the way that queer people are viewed has changed so much. And God, the 80s were so like special when it came to the way the language that they use, especially around like being gay. Like how many times that I hear like faggot when I was like a little kid and that stuff imprints in you, you know, but you know, many years have gone by. You sound so centered. You sound like someone who's taken almost like a, you have perspective and there's a calmness about the way you're approaching all of this subject matter. And this is your life. Like this is your health. This is your career. Uh, The question I was going to ask, I feel like I already know the answer to uh, because of the tone that you're speaking with and the way that you're reflecting on all these things that have happened in your life, which is, do you feel at peace with the whole thing? And I clearly, I mean, I think there's an obvious yes to that. Yes. And there, I, I think there's more work to do, but I realized at some point that Oh, I was listening to Dolly Parton. I love Dolly Parton. And we there's a Dolly podcast on right now called, have you seen this podcast? It's called uh, Dolly World. I don't, it's a nine part series by a gay guy. No. You watch uh, Sorry, it. no her. free plugs, no free plugs. <laughs> oh yeah. So, Kidding, so anyway, totally. so she's, it's, it, it's, it's nine hours and they take you down some really twisty, uh, she's a pretty special person. But anyway, it's all, and she says this and I, and I'm f- fully, you know, engaged in this idea that it's all about forgiveness. The whole thing is, you know, and uh, the last person that I really got, you know, like I've forgiven David, you know, it's like, God bless him. You know what I mean? But the last person I got around to forgiving was me Mm. because in deep, deep down inside, I felt like I had really screwed up a good opportunity. Mm, I could see that. And that I was the reason that I didn't get what I want because I didn't stay in the game. You know, and I had to forgive myself for, for leaving. How do you feel that you forgive someone who doesn't ask your forgiveness? Uh, they don't, you know, it's, it's really interesting because they don't enter your mind anymore. Mm. You know, it's like, I don't think about David, you know, I mean, like David, you know, he, you know, he gas was doing a little gaslight number on me there. It's like, well, if you feel like you're hurt, then I'm sad that you feel like you're hurt. You know I mean? I, everybody's dad has apologized to them at least once that way. Mm. Um, but I don't, he has no space in, in my world anymore. You know I mean? I, I'm even hesitant to talk about him when I'm out on the road. You know I mean? It's the same thing with Wes and Bob Shea and all those people. You know, Bob Shea follows me on Twitter now. He's the head of New Line Cinema. He owns New Line Cinema. You know, and I, I'd always say things like, you know, like he, he kind of owed all the actors like another movie once, you know, New Line became New Line. Do you know what I mean? Like none of those kids did he give, you know, an, a next opportunity to, which I always think that you should, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm big on loyalty. So, but you ultimately in the end, you just let it go. So, um, I'm alive. I lived, I, like I say in the movie, I would have never, um, I would have never been able to handle AIDS full on in public. I wouldn't have been able to, I mean, Tim did it. I, I wouldn't have done it. I would have been so humiliated because there's a lot of ugly things that go along with that disease. You know, I was yeah. very sick for a long time. So, um, and then I got well and like people see me now, it's like, Oh, I would never dream, you know, you know, and that's like, I, I like it that way, you know, but, but then I began to tell that story too, which was, re- is a really important story to tell. Um, I think because it's still here. It's not, 
it hasn't gone any place. Right. And the way the world is, you know what I mean? It's like, I always say to these guys, you know, be careful because, you know, those protease inhibitors might stop working one day and mm. that prep might not hold out for the long run. So, you know, just keep that in the back of your mind so that you know how to, if you get in the position where you have to fight, you know, for your life, then know how, you know, yeah, because sure. there's a, there's a generation of people. I love this with the Me Too the, and Black Lives Matter right now is like, I'm so up in this that I, and like, I completely and utterly understand that I don't know what it's like to be black. But I do know what it's like to be a white person listening to other white people do their bullshit number. And yeah. I can stand in, in faith to that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Of, uh, you know, and, but it's hard to fight, you know what I mean? But ultimately in the end, you have to, that's, yeah. they won't, nobody will give you power without fighting for it. Mark, I knew we were going to talk about Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and the documentary and everything, but I almost feel like there's like a there's like some spiritual lessons that you're kind of sharing because I'm learning some stuff and I feel like you're full of wisdom. Like this is really a pleasure to talk to you. I want to thank you again. Oh, for thank you so job. much. Thank you so much. Well, you have to have me come back on uh, another time and we'll talk about anything you want. <laughs> that sounds fun. You know, I had a dream. I was talking to Roman about this. I had a dream that, that you guys and us took over the convention world. And um, and I have I have a Ooh, vision. I like this dream. Yeah, I had a vision of us like drag queens and horror people joining together, and uh, and doing a convention together, which I think would be fabulous. Let's do it. It would be great to do a panel with you, like us and you together. Would be fun. Oh, it'd be blessed. Do you ever go to the conventions and like they're so boring? And it's like I'm like give a drag queen like some paper and bread and she'll throw you a carnival ride in the middle of the thing. I have a vision of a red carpet down the middle of the, the room with, uh, you know, like the K- Kmart red light special goes. And when that <laughs> light comes on, everybody has to get off the carpet and the drags walk. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I do love it. You know, it would be done with much more fanfare and flair so we get our claws into it. <laughs> but this past year, we actually have been guests at uh, a few horror conventions. It's a new outlet for us. And we we bring with it all of like the power and the pomp and the circumstance just of our presence. And people have been reacting so positively. There's such a commonality between horror and queerness. I love your idea. We're going to make it happen. We're going to bring it into fruition. For sure. Sounds great. Let's, let's make it happen. So Mark, what is next for you? All things considered. Well, you know, COVID came along. I'm, I was like right in the middle of a European tour when this hit. So, um, so I've been sitting, you know, in my, I, I live on a farm in Mexico, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, like really a farm. And um, so I've been sitting here, you know, for, <laughs> for four months. Um, I have a new movie coming out called One Dead Dog. I started making movies about a little while ago on the, on the down low, just to see if I wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's fun. And so if people offer me something, um, good. I do feel like, you know, like there's something in my future and I'm not really certain what it is, but I know when it shows up, it'll show up. And, um, and I made a commitment to myself for the next two years just to say yes to whatever comes along. Oh, I love that. I agree. I feel like there's something you're going to come into. I don't know what it is. I feel like you're not there yet, but an opportunity is going to come. That's just the right thing for you. And all this will make sense. (laughs) Well, Jack yeah, kind of thinks like Dustin Lance Black and Ryan Murphy will get together and throw me a little party. And there you go. Be <laughs> you know, being ab- 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 uh, but you know, just 
I really, I, I mean, I want to emphasize that a whole lot. It's like, you know, for me saying yes is, is uh, a big deal. I mean, I turned movies down for seven or eight years after I left. And, um, you know, so I do think I'd like to have one opportunity. I don't know if I'd want to be a, a full-time actor again, but I would love to have one opportunity to see what I could have done. You know, I mean, my friend sure. Kathy, you know, it's like Kathy Bates is a friend of mine. And, you know, I remember when we were doing Jimmy Dean together, that was her you know, second Broadway show and it was going to be her second movie, I guess. And I, I still recognize the same talent that she had then. Now she does the same things that she was doing back then, hmm. but, uh, but she does them so much better, you know, and I would love to see, you know, what I could do if I had some, that skill set underneath me and you could do it too. You absolutely could do it too. Yeah. And it'd be fun. I would love to see you play Freddy and a new nightmare movie personally. (laughs) Thank you very much. I actually would too. I, I, people always say that, you know, they, they're always like, why don't you be a, you know, uh, and you can be the gay dad or you can be the gay gym coach. And I'm like, no, I can be the gay Freddy. Right. Fuck that. I want to be the gay monster. Yeah, exactly. I, I wrote this, uh, I wrote this book called Jesse's Lost Journals and it's about the first half of it is a diary and the first half of it is stays faithful to the movie. And then the, the second half is what happens when Jesse leaves and Jesse and, and goes to New York. He ends up in New York as a painter. He's a painter in New York. And of course, Freddie follows him and they, you know, they, run the town he kills andy warhol so um but it's it's really fun and it was like so much fun to do it and i always saw freddie as that jesse was freddie's porn you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so he liked to you know get off through jesse and i thought that's a really good concept of you know because that will twist your mind because slowly you see in this book that jesse becomes more like freddie he loses himself and um oh i really like the sound of it yeah, it'd be fun and dark, and you know, you'd be in it, and yes. it'd be fabulous. <laughs> yes. Lots of really great clothes and great music, and all our friends. And naturally, you know, it could be fabulous. Yeah, they need to talk to us. Warner Brothers needs to talk to the people that know. I said the other day when I was talking about something, and I said, you know, people ask me, have the business changed? And I said, I'm going to give you a great example of how the business has changed. Like people like you and me, they used to only get jobs like being the hairdresser. Right or the the makeup artist or the costume designer, mm-hmm. but you give you you boys give you forty million dollars to make a movie with and see what happens yeah. because you'll bring the show to them and it will change show business yeah. because you know because like there's a, a great untapped like genius and it's gay genius I don't I'm, I'm not frightened to say it. It's, you know, like we have a rich history that hasn't even been touched yet. I mean, you think about what you're talking about, Frankenstein and all those movies where before the Hayes Code, you know, the way that they coded all of this stuff into so that we would still, how how brilliant do you have to be to do that, right? To save a language, to save a film language, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think we've got really good things to make for people. And I think people like them. And I haven't met a person yet that doesn't like to get in drag. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well let's put that out there in the universe i think uh i think that's a good place to start and listen thank you so much for being here and we wish oh, you I nothing but success it. with the documentary and everything that's going on with you now and it's been a total pleasure such having a you pleasure today. mark thank you 
Okay, well, I'll see you on the panel. All okay, right. we'll see you there. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. We'll be right back with our Boulay Brothers Creatures of the Night Creature Feature Movie Review. See you soon. All right, welcome back, Uglies. In honor of Pride, we chose one of the first queer horror movies to hit the silver screen and one that is also credited by some as the first haunted house type movie ever created. The film is titled The Old Dark House. It was made in 1932 and was directed by openly gay director James Whale. The film is available to stream on Amazon Prime. The basic plot follows three travelers who are forced to stop and take refuge in a huge old creepy house during an extreme thunderstorm and the bizarre characters and situations they encounter during their stay. Uh, Swan, I know this was a rewatch for us, but let's open the floor and let us know what you think. Look, I was kind of gagged that this movie was made... 90 years ago and how much queer coding is actually in here um you know the first time i watch it i'm it, it was unfolding and i'm like oh my god this character is like such a queen you know and and i'm referring to uh seeing ernest thesiger i hate his last name i think i said it right i think you can say it like a bunch of different ways but he was in the bride of frankenstein too he's like a very prominent actor of the time uh in this film the old dark house he plays horace who initially is like you think of as like the patriarch of the house and he's sort of dark and kind of serious. And then halfway through, it's like, oh my God, his performance morphs. Like, hey, his code be damned. He's like a total queen. And <laughs> you see like the gayness like totally coming through. And then Horace's sister and she gives off the like the most masculine energy and it, it kind of puts you in this, this space of thinking about femininity and masculinity and how everyone's presenting and i'm just blown away that this was a movie made from the 1930s yeah i i completely agree i i had not seen this until just now and you guys had recommended it to me and i kind of knew that there were a lot of i guess you know like gay subtext or gay elements um going into it so i was looking everywhere like i was like she's gay she's gay she's a lesbian like this whole house is gay and then i (laughs) yeah but then like and you know i feel like for me i really do feel like that like i'm like morgan is hot that is a hot daddy (laughs) i want him to throw me on the table that's fine um but yeah what you were talking about of uh horace's uh character specifically i think that he almost was maybe like a mirror of james whale um potentially you know the way that his character is so overtly queer um and i've I feel sure. like there's even kind of a really big feminine moment where he's going up the stairs with, I think it's uh, Philip Waverton or, uh, oh, yes, it's Mr. Waverton. They're going up the stairs and he's like, oh, I'm actually, I'm I'm too scared and too weak to go upstairs. I couldn't possibly go. go. I'm like, oh, just I, I need a man to help me. I was like, oh, this queen, <laughs> she needs milk. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is, is that the scene? I'm not sure if that's the scene. I know, and I know Boris Karloff, who it's you know this is horror history uh, at its best. Boris Karloff's in the movie. He scoops up another male character and carries him through a threshold, and it, and it really much invokes this imagery of, of a, a bride and their groom on sort of like consummating the marriage. Did you pick up on yeah, that? Yeah, totally. The scene where Morgan is holding Saul after the house has kind of burned down and Saul is murdered, you know, it's almost like these two monsters are holding each other very closely. And it's, you know, a character who has been shunned for in, in the movies where it's being dumb or being, you know, maybe mentally not all the way there, holding this other character who was shunned and put away. I, I was like, oh my God, am I 
am I crying? Is this happening during Pride? <laughs> <laughs> well, and then the gag of, and which was my favorite part, is the drag king oh. in the attic. I'm like, that is what shot. I mean, first of all, this is like one of my favorite movies. I love this time period. If I could go back in time and live in a black and white world like that, I would. I just, even Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, this movie, they all have that similar uh, beauty to them. But anyways, yeah, when when they got upstairs finally and then you're like, oh my God, there's a drag thing in this movie. It just, to be um, that old of a movie was just shocking. It was unbelievable. The patriarch of the family and the elder of the house, you know, is uh, the old grandpa who is upstairs and is played by a woman. I, I'm watching, I'm like, is that a lady? Mm-hmm. I mean, she has a beard. Like, this is a drag thing in 1932. It's unbelievable. Well, you know, what's interesting is, you know, you guys know this. Their drag kings were performing back then mm-hmm. for real in real life. But I can't, I couldn't believe that they put one in a mainstream movie. I thought it was really cool. And that might tie into, which we've t- chatted about a little bit uh, off air, is that this movie was made right before that Hayes Code mm-hmm. was enacted. So you, right. see people, you see queer content, you see people drinking. And I don't know if you guys feel this way. I feel like watching this movie is much more relatable to our time period. You're like, oh, these people aren't that different than the way we live today. Whereas if you watch The Bride of Frankenstein or mm-hmm. something, it seems so proper that you're like, oh, were people just really like proper and fancy back then? But that's not the case. It's just the way they made the movies. Sure, their hands were tied. It comes co- it comes across with like a being a sterile type of society and it's, it's alien. It's unrelatable to now. So I totally recognize what you're saying. Um, I want to back up to a, something that Ian mentioned about the character Horace potentially being a mirror for James Wick. And I don't know that we've talked about this yet, but James Whale was a filmmaker who's responsible for a ton of monster movie classics like Frankenstein, this the old dark house, the invisible man, Bride of Frankenstein. And his queerness back then was completely radical. He was an out gay filmmaker in Hollywood. And that just was unheard of at the time. So it's revolutionary. Yeah, I feel like especially when you guys told me, oh, there's tons of queer representation. Like I said, I was I was looking for it everywhere. And I feel like if you're looking for like Hamburger Mary's homo horror, this ain't it, sis. Like it's all in subtext. Right. But when you start to look, it's everywhere. Like even, I don't know, I just, I found the movie to be so fabulous. Um, like even the way that mm-hmm. the house is decorated and the characters interact with one another, like everyone has a sassy quip. Everyone's got something to say. And I don't know, everyone is like making some sort of gay reference or I don't know, just, I guess, feeling fabulous. Did you guys feel uh, any sense of terror or fear? And it's sometimes it's hard uh, with older movies to get scared or put yourself in that mindset because we're so used to being over bombarded mm-hmm. today with like flash and sound and effects. And so it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to go back and watch older black and white movies and still get that feeling of dread. But did you guys feel, I felt like when they were driving the car and they were stuck in the mud and all that, I was like, Oh, y'all are going to die. Like, did you guys feel <laughs> that at all or no? Swan, do you want to go first? I think there was a tension that the the movie was successful at, not only in the terror of reaching the house, because a, a, a number of different groups of people were stranded there in this storm on these treacherous roads, and you did really feel that. But also, who was in the house? Like there were who lives in this house, and the fear of like who might come walking through that door, or the kind of mentally unstable brute that lives in the mm-hmm. house, or this. The Saul character, and, and also like this fear of like, uh, I think it, it was presented a couple of times of like the house being set on fire, mm-hmm. which I, mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering if, you know, in my mind, I like to think of it as another extension of the queer coding, like a flaming house, because girl, <laughs> everybody, everybody in that house began. Totally. I, I actually, I wrote this down because I wanted to talk to you guys about it. 
there was one scare and you you guys know i love sound design in horror films i think it can really just take it to the next level and the scene that i had mentioned earlier where horace is walking up the stairs and he's like oh you know i think that uh, the lamp is too heavy i couldn't possibly take it by myself and there's this back and forth and then you just hear this like maniacal cackling and there's like a thunder crash and both characters kind of turn to look at what is you find out later that's where saul is being kept in that kind of locked door and i was watching i was like oh my god yeah that is scary like that is horror um yeah Mm -hmm. i I was very pleasantly surprised because i can see you know we i feel like we owe a lot to this movie like rocky horror owes a lot to it the shining i feel like owes a lot to it it was i feel like it's not scary in the sense of like Blah, jump scare. But in terms of slow burn terror, I bow down a little bit to it. Well, I think it sounds like we all give this movie a thumbs up, right? Across the board. And I'd like to point out that uh, Rotten Tomatoes gives it the elusive and rare 100%. And I think it earns it. (laughs) 100%. Girl, yes. Get into that. (laughs) All right. Well, Ian, thank you for joining us for the movie review. And for everyone else... It's time to dim the lights and prepare for this episode's hauntings of history. For this section of the show, we like to dig up a real-life documented supernatural happening and give listeners an abridged history of the terrifying event. We encourage you to turn off the lights, find a dark, quiet place to relax in, and prepare for a journey into the unknown. We can't stay alive without it. We all spend a third of our entire lives doing it. Sleep. Every night we submit and partake in a psychic gamble where our bodies are at rest, but our minds are unbridled, sometimes more active than they are, even in the waking world. In the dreamscape, we might live out our wildest fantasies or fight for our lives. On this episode's Haunting of History, we explore the idea of what the Japanese call pokori, and in the Philippines, they call it bangungat. Both of these words translate roughly to the same thing, nightmare death. We're talking about dying in your sleep, and how the phenomenon influenced a young Wes Craven to go on to create one of the horror world's most iconic antagonists. Of course, I'm talking about A Nightmare on Elm Street's Freddy Krueger. Mark Patton, our special guest this episode, has the distinction of being the horror world's prima final boy, as he was the last one standing to face off with Freddy in Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. The film is not only a great example of queerness being coded into a horror movie, it takes us further into the realm of the dreamscape and explores the terrifying idea that what happens in your mind, in your sleep, could kill you in real life. There was a story listed in the LA Times about a child refugee from the Cambodian genocide of the 1970s who was terrified to sleep for fear of being killed in his dreams. Wes Craven read that article. In a series of reports during the 70s and 80s, we learned that an unexpected phenomenon was affecting a mostly Southeast Asian population living in the US. And for that reason, it was called Asian death syndrome. It often happened the same way. A healthy, relatively young individual would wake, sweating and screaming, and then they would die, or simply be found dead, having passed in their sleep. Autopsies revealed nothing, and scientists were stymied. 
In some medical journals, authors even suggested that some of these refugees were killed by their own beliefs in the spiritual world. It later came out that among certain Asian ethnic groups, a predisposition to forms of coronary artery disease existed. And because of this predisposition and all of the stress of escaping the genocide and being forced to partake in the Asian diaspora through the U.S., it added up to sudden death in sleep. Before the science of the condition was discovered, the situation was sort of suspended between the strange worlds of mysticism and death. In cultures across the world, from Scandinavia to Turkey to Thailand, there exists a tale of a creature, a creature of the night, a night hag, in fact, who appears only during sleep, crouched and pressing on the chest of its sleeping victim. They awake in horror, frozen, paralyzed. Was this the creature responsible for the deaths of hundreds of immigrants in America? The night hag? It sounds like a perfect name for an evil supernatural female presence bent on sleep paralysis and death. The spirit was also known by another name, though, originating from the Middle English term mare, describing a malevolent female spirit killing people in their sleep. The word was nightmare. And before our modern acceptance of the definition, the word nightmare referred specifically to these evil spirits responsible for people dying in their sleep. Fascinating stuff. And I'm sure with an imagination like Wes Craven's, the idea of Freddy Krueger really started to come into focus. This was all happening in the early 80s, and a nightmare in Elm Street hit theaters in 1984. During this same period, Wes Craven was also directing episodes of the first revival of the classic horror anthology, The Twilight Zone. An interesting synchronicity when you take a look at season one of the original series, episode nine, titled Perchance to Dream, which is based on a novella written by a man named Charles Beaumont. This episode came out in 1959. In the episode, a man stumbles into a psychiatrist's office saying he hasn't slept for four days. In his last dream, a dark carnival dancer named Maya was trying to kill him. He was terrified. He couldn't go back to sleep. He believed that if he died in his dreams, he would die in real life. Sounds familiar. And spoiler alert, by the end of the episode, because of his dreams, our leading man is dead. Now, of course, it's been speculated that this episode and the novella which spawned it served as Wes Craven's inspiration for A Nightmare on Elm Street, but he insists that his work was never inspired by Beaumont's. And whether it was or it wasn't, it's clear that creatives have been drawing water from the well of nightmares and death for years and years. I'd like to conclude this episode's Haunting of History by revisiting the closing narration from that Twilight Zone episode, Perchance to Dream. They say a dream takes only a second or so, and yet in that second, a man can live a lifetime. He can suffer and die. And who's to say which is the greater reality, the one we know or the one in dreams between heaven, the sky, the earth, in the twilight zone? Oh my gosh, that was, I have chills. I am legitimately, if I wasn't already so afraid to sleep at night sometimes, this is, this has made me truly truly gag that was amazing and so scary yeah it's cool right it, the first thing i thought was ian already can't go to sleep so now it's over 
as you were reading, I was like, oh my gosh, this is totally my life. Uh, there's coronary artery disease. There's stress. The Asian diaspora. I was like, girl, I, Asian death syndrome is coming for me, mama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting. And I just wonder if you felt like in researching this topic, do you feel like, yeah, there was a medical explanation for some of it, but do you feel like there was more supernatural activity happening behind the scenes? Well, it's hard to say, but I kind of have a strong belief that a lot of the supernatural and its way to affect the real world is all behind the beliefs of the people that you know, hold those uh, traditions or those beliefs to be true. So like in the example of these, um, the indigenous people from Southeast Asia that were forced here, they had like a strong connection to like the shamanism and the spiritual world of their natural surroundings and their history. And some of this research kind of tied back to that. And I go back to the line where it says, you know, some medical journals and the authors suggested that the refugees were killed in their sleep because of their beliefs in the spiritual world. I feel like that stress that comes on with, with the strength of those beliefs could really affect you physically in the real world. I agree with you, Swan. I feel like the link between, you know, whether you want to call it science or if you want to go more of the like mysticism route, you know, stress and what we experience in our everyday life and the things that we believe in, they totally, in my opinion, affect everything around us. You know, they, they color our worldview, especially with sleep, which I believe sleep is just the cousin of death. Um, personally, my favorite part of this hauntings of history is the creature of the night crouched during sleep, the night hag, the nightmare. When I tell you, I screamed <laughs> with my mic muted. I was like, oh, she said nightmare. Oh, my wig was fucking obliterated by that. I was like, like it's no, perfect. It's so scary. I love like mythologies like this. Like vampirism is like very similar to where, you know, cultures all over the world very unconnected people, isolated cultures share in this like commonality of this kind of lore. So it makes you think that these type of spirits, you know, how are they being introduced to people all over the world? It makes you think that there's some credence to their existence for real. Sure. Even like, you know, every culture has its own boogeyman. You know, I feel like every, every culture has, you know, the story of, oh, you better be good or something is going to come get you in your sleep. And with real evidence like this, I am never sleeping again. I can tell you that. Well, this goes to the place where I get most scared and, and what gets me going about horror. And it's the idea of things happening outside of the realm of reality. We've talked about this before. I'm not scared of someone breaking into my apartment and cutting me up with a chainsaw because I kind of <laughs> know how that works and I could fight that off and probably win. But if someone's coming at me with like the supernatural or there's like a night hag sitting on my chest or, you know, Freddy Krueger is bending the rules of reality and I don't know which way is up or down or where the fear is coming from, that's when I really get shooketh. Uh, Swan, that was a fascinating story. Thank you for sharing it with us. And we have a little time left. I think we should move on to listener questions if you're down. Absolutely. Um, our first question comes from Danielle. And Danielle writes, Hi, what advice would you give to someone whose family is toxic? I think this is a really tough one. Uh, I've kind of had to face this recently myself. And it's, I think it really comes down to you your personal tolerance level and if it's a healthy relationship for you or not. Because I kind of feel like, you know, you want to give it every chance you can. I'm not a fan of destroy the person, throw them out, never talk to them again. But in all honesty, and excuse me, in all honesty, sometimes the relationship is just unhealthy and it's not going to be repaired. And I think it's okay for you to say it to someone respectfully, 
this relationship is not healthy for me and I'm going to remove myself from it if things change in the future and you can approach me with some respect, then maybe we can pick this back up. I think that there's a lot of different toxic environments that you can live in and be surrounded by. And some of this comes from personal experience too. I'm also someone who thinks that family is very important. It's the way that I grew up and it's what I've been instilled with. So coming from a a place where I've had issues with my family, chosen family or otherwise, you really have to gauge how much it affects you and how much you want to let it in. So I think you can love someone, but you can also keep your distance and not get involved on a personal level, keep it on a love level, and it becomes much easier. Like you don't have to fix people, you don't have to tangle with their messes. You can love them and you can love them from a great distance sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our next question is from Samantha. Samantha says, Samantha asks, What is your strangest fan interaction? And is there anything you have refused? <sighs> I mean, I don't know. Nothing comes to mind for my strangest fan interaction, but one of my favorites I can share freely, which is oftentimes in a meet and greet, people, you know, will invariably want to take their photo. And every now and then, uh, someone might say, Oh, would you guys, could you guys like choke me in this picture? And that's like my favorite thing. I'm like, that's a, that's a hard yes. Like, absolutely and very easily. And thank you. I don't think as far as anything we've refused, I can't recall anything. I mean, unless they ask us to do, ridiculous shit that's just humiliating or something ridiculous you know maybe we'd say no to that but that's about it i think can you think of anything strange that uh people might have asked us that you know while we're traveling or at a meet and greet or at a convention or anything like that you know how i am when when that happens and it annoys me i just sort of block it from my mind as if it never happened so i can't remember (laughs) you let me clean up that mess usually i really kind of shut down like i'm there but i'm not there you know i'm like eh, my door closed on you yeah (laughs) right you know what else i kind of love when people come up and they're between us and our arms are around us and they're like shaking and shambling because they're so intimidated that becomes my new normal so when people aren't shaking that's strange that's strange (laughs) to me (laughs) So next question, Anna asks, what was your first experience of seeing drag and what was your initial reaction to it? Um, I'll answer first. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So when I was younger, uh, when I was growing up, I would sneak out to bars. I love John Waters movies and I love the trashiness and the craziness and the wrongness of it all. And so I would kind of try to sneak out and go to the most wretched gay bars in the world. So I would kind of, and I mean, I was way too, I mean, I don't know, I was probably 15, 16, whatever. And I would go to these crazy gay bars that were like, you know, in the warehouse district and it was all shady and seedy and, you know, half of it was a sex club or there'd be like naked go-go dance. I mean, it was like really like a John Waters movie. And I went to this one and there was a big drag club and it was huge and it was like a big theater stage and all these tables but it was like ancient it was like dusty and worn (laughs) out and dim and it smelled weird and it was just like what is this place and so i went and it was like huge but there was only like 20 people there you know and it was like scattered around and sad and weird and there was this drag performer who was older and kind of like this Dolly Parton impersonator and I was um 
And you knew at that moment that is what you wanted to be. I, okay, honestly, I, I just was like, I will never be that. <laughs> I, could, I, I just couldn't. I was like, this is the worst fate on earth because she was older. And I was like, oh my God, like, can you know what would happen? And, and you know, I was close to her and I could see this tape behind her ears and all this crazy shit. And it was dusty. I don't know, it was just horrible. But the point being was... <laughs> She must have cursed me because now I do drag. And that's my point. She's like, you're going to judge me? Curse. You're it. So now I have to avoid, you know, later in life when I get older, I have to make sure that I quit drag before I get old. <laughs> that is hilarious. Um, I got to say, I think my experience was very different. Uh, I was also kind of underage, but I was in New York City at the time. And I, this is probably like the early 90s. I was at Splash Bar in Chelsea and Lip Synca was on stage. Um you know, and I wasn't there to see a drag show. I didn't even realize there was going to be a drag performance that night. And out comes Lip Synca. And for those of you that don't know, just go Google it because the performances are amazing. I mean, this has nothing to do with the type of drag that I would go on to do, but I completely respect it because it is campy and it is it is performance. It it is theater and it is meticulous. Like she looked gorgeous, and this was one of those performances where there was a string of uh, sound bites from like movies, all strung artfully together to create its own unique message um, from a bunch of different classic movies. And, and I think that's kind of what Sin- Lipsinka is known for. And when she came out, like everything changed. The horniness of the environment had turned. And we knew we were going to be entertained. Lights on her and. She came out and just nailed every single syllable for what felt like 20 minutes of dialogue. And I was so impressed and blown away. I mean, that was a long time ago and it is absolutely just as fresh as yesterday. I could see that experience in my mind because it was, it was a queer art that I had never seen before that was very much theater and it was kind of magic. Yeah. Lip Sync really treats lip syncing as an it is an art form like she is so meticulous about it and it's funny because i moved you know a few years later i moved to new york and we met and i remember the queens in new york at at the time they're just so talented i mean you had to be talented at theater singing hosting i mean they were just it was just a different kind of drag experience which is what we came up on and what always inspired us and it's just weird because my experience with drag Initially, and of course, I watched all the John Waters movies, so I had Divine and all that. But in person, you know, I would go to these awful gay bars and see the worst drag performers. But honestly, it inspired me late. Like, I love and appreciate those memories now because I'm like, oh, you should have went on Dragula. Like, I'm like, like, (laughs) back then for sure. It was like the world's oldest drag queen at this (laughs) Mr. P's bar. I mean, it was just like, you wouldn't believe some of the queens that I Uh, saw back then. Amazing stuff. But to go back to what you just said, like New York at that time was extremely amazing time to be uh, in the the queer culture and be young and being exposed to all that stuff, particularly in the drag world because everyone was so talented and everybody had, it wasn't just about the way you could paint yourself. These were singers. They were in rock bands. Like I got exposed to so much punk drag like you know badass punk rock east village drag bitch in a in a in a rock band just killing it on stage like a like a, a rock god i mean yeah. for me i didn't realize i was getting spoiled at the time but this is one of my first experiences of what what it meant to be gay and what it meant to be queer and what it meant to be a queen and uh I, that all those experiences have shaped me and and i i think both of us and we've gone on to i think we're redefining that world now based on those lessons we learned then. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, listen, that's all the time we have 
for today's episode. We thank you all for joining us. And remember to email us your questions at creatures at bulletbrothersdragula.com. And remember to watch the Boulet Brothers Dragula streaming now on Netflix in the US, Out TV in Canada, Amazon Prime in the UK and Australia, and TVNZ in New Zealand. We'll see you next time, everyone. The Boulet Brothers Creatures of the Night is hosted and produced by Drac Morda and Swanthula Boulet, featuring co-host Ian DeVogler. Produced by Natasha Pasetta, edited and mixed by Ernesto Hortada, with music by Neuron Spectre. 